Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. Well, this week, uh, I just decided to pick one that I kind of wanted to see. We were a little under the gun the way that we record these episodes. Sometimes we do several in advance, which gives me a little bit of a break, or Craig a little bit of a break when we need it. And because uh, we needed that break uh, these last couple weeks, it has been a good solid two weeks, I think, since you've seen this movie and we chose it. And I chose Creepshow. I just chose it because uh, I was kind of under the gun to choose something. It had been on my list. We hadn't done it yet. We've done Creepshow 2. But this is a long-time favorite movie of mine, so I was really happy to go revisit it. I probably saw this a dozen times as a kid. The first time I saw it, I know my dad rented it for me and watched it with me. And I might have been a little younger than I think I would be renting it for my son, (laughs) you know? I think part of the reason why this movie really sticks in my brain is I was so young when I saw it, and so they were elements of this movie that at that time were were more shocking to me than they, you know, obviously are now. But, you know, it comes from a great pedigree. It's Stephen King uh, is the writer. A couple of these are based on his short stories. Um, other ones, he just wrote up whole cloth from it. It's based on my favorite. We've talked about it before. Uh, the EC horror comics <clears> from the 50s and uh, collaboration with George Romero and did really, really well at the box office. <clears> uh, it was Warner Brothers top horror movie for that year. Once it came out, it knocked Rambo First Blood off the top spot in the theaters. So, uh, yeah, pretty impressive. Uh, but yeah, I haven't seen this, oh God, in probably 15, 20 years. So I was real happy to revisit it. How about you, Craig? I see. I think that you and I had totally opposite experiences because I grew up watching Creepshow 2. Mm. Uh, I saw that when I was a kid. I don't remember how old I was. You know, old enough to ride my bike to the video store and <laughs> rent an R-rated movie <laughs> at like 12 because, you know, they would let us do that back in those right? days. <laughs> but I... I <laughs> the good old days. Is that good or bad? It's, yeah. Those days are gone. I'm not sure. I don't know. <laughs> no, seriously, like me and my cousins, you know, probably 12, 13 years old, we would you know, ride our bikes to Mr. Movie or, you know, some other like local video place and be like, yeah, our, our dad said it was fine. <laughs> they just hand it All over. Right. Yeah, no big deal. Who cares? Uh-huh. But so I grew up watching that movie and I really like that movie. I don't think I saw Creepshow 1 until I was an adult. I mean, at least a teenager, if not college and I think probably college and I haven't seen it as many times and uh, probably just because I grew up with part two I think I like part two better right you know I was thinking about it and there are only three stories in part two is that right and there are five here correct yeah they had to cut it down to three based on budget constraints so yeah I don't know for whatever reason also you know just it's part two so it was made later so not much later i mean it's still 80s but uh i don't know for something about part two just feels a little bit more polished to me yeah the thing about this one is because there are so many stories they happen so fast and i don't dislike that but it's difficult to get attached to any characters. I mean, they're they're just really, I uh, just right. even like machine gun fire. These these stories come at you. They start. They happen. They're done. Moving on. Which it, it, you know that that could for many people I think be a positive thing. But um, it just made it a little bit difficult for me to get invested in any of the stories. I think the tone of the uh, of the of the two films is very different. The tone of this movie is. I would almost say half jokey, 
you know yeah they're they're, they're kind of cheesing dark it humor but definitely jokey yeah yeah dark humor definitely jokey they're leaning hard into the horror comics like i would say being even more faithful yeah to those old horror comics yeah. than um than the second movie is it's a little more straightforward horror this movie goes as far as to have transitions that look like you know comic strips moving and which and, i and, love uh, yeah yeah it, it was cute and it was fun you know, the, these old horror comics, I'm not going to go off on them like I've done several times before, but one of the things, you know, they did upset parents at the time. They were pushing boundaries, and they had ghastly artwork in these in these stories. And one of the ways that they sort of self-censored, the colorists at, the, at EC Comics, when they were co- coloring the artwork, deliberately would tone down the gruesomeness by just making things like a panel would be all blue. Yeah. So maybe there was like gore and stuff in the panel, but they would just paint the whole thing blue. So it was it didn't look like a bloody mess. Right. There is a bloody mess being drawn there, but the coloring somehow mutes it a little bit. And this movie I thought was kind of cute how it would do that. Like when the gory, scary scenes came in, it would do that like free that framing around it sometimes where it looks like you're in a comic strip or there'd be some kind of artwork around them. They would do it with lighting. That's what and, I mean. And like yeah. and practical lighting, which I thought was really cool. Like, like randomly the one that pops into my head is one of the stories is uh the crate and at the very very end when some ghastly stuff is happening Hal Holbrook is just like standing in like a stairwell and it goes from realistic lighting to just these red lights come up behind him yeah like someone flipped a switch right in the same shot yeah it's really cool but it but it's not it's not really an effect it's just they just changed the lighting yes but it 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 makes it look like a comic book sell Mm -hmm. and it's cool i i I really like stuff like that there's a lot of good stuff going on in this movie i don't i don't want to insinuate that i i don't like it because i do i i think it's fun i think there's a lot of good stuff going on so much in fact, that we should probably talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Just like um, a lot of anthology stories do, there is a wraparound story. And this is uh, actually, I thought, one of the more disturbing parts of the whole film, really. Like, like straightforward disturbing. Well, the wraparound for part two is kind of disturbing, too, you know, with that kid who's bullied, and then he gets his revenge uh-huh. on the bully. It's pretty dark, but this one is dark, too. Like, yeah. it, it opens up with, you know, a classic house with a jack-o'-lantern at night, and and the score even sounds like Carpenter's score from Halloween. I don't know if they did that on yeah. purpose. They surely did. Seems like deliberate homage with that jack-o'-lantern in uh-huh. the window that looks suspicious like that jack-o'-lantern <laughs> in the opening credits for Halloween. <laughs> but we open on a scene of domestic abuse where, like, yeah. this dad is just, like, he's furious at his son for reading trash comics, which just is so funny and quaint to me. Like, yeah. I, I, I would think that any parent today would celebrate their kid reading anything (laughs) that's that's where we've come you know (laughs) the dad he's like i never saw such rotten crap in my life where do you get this shit who sells it to you i'm talking to you young man you want to answer me when i'm talking to you you remember who puts the friggin' bread on the table around here don't you and then he goes on to kind of like summarize the stories that we're going to be seeing yeah and the kid 
who, by the way, is played by Joe Hill, Stephen King's son. Watching it this time around and looking into it, this is the first time that I realized that. Even though in retrospect, I'm pretty sure that in one of Joe Hill's books, he talks about this, mm-hmm. the filming of this movie, and um, how, uh, you know, Romero was, and of course his own dad, but, you know, a, a real hero of his, and really, you know, he respected and admired and tried to emulate their storytelling. And and Joe Hill's a great author, friends. If you haven't read his stuff, read it. It's it's fantastic. Mm. But uh I does the the dad hits him, right? Like backhands him. Oh god. Him. Well the the dad's played by Tom Atkins. And yeah, he he backhands him. He I think he whacks him with the comic book. And I read in the trivia that uh Stephen King was on set for this and he was kind of nervous about the whole thing and so was Romero. So, yeah, I guess if you look really closely and pay attention, Joe is actually hitting himself. <laughs> and it was just such a quick shot that they cut away that you don't quite notice it. So, uh it's so funny where even in the filming of this, they were a little nervous about the domestic violence bit because this is so typical King, right? Oh, yeah. Like every parent in the Stephen King story is like a horrible, abusive parent. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, just, that's, that's kind of more of a Wes Craven thing. But yeah, Stephen... Stephen King has it too. Oh yeah, the, the, the kid, the kid yells at his dad. I hope you rot in hell. And oh then- <laughs> my god, the dad's cursing and swearing at him. It's crazy. It's crazy. And then what I call the creep. What would you call it? The the crypt keeper type. Dude, yeah, whatever. The- he he appears outside the window, and in, in this iteration. It's animated, right? God, it's been like two weeks since I've seen this. He, he... Well, at first, he appears outside the window as an actual like uh, effect. Tom Savini like did a... all the effects. Right. Tom Savini did the effects, and that's, you know, you don't have to tell me much more than that about a movie. I'm, I'm down. He's, he's a master. But then it transitions. So, yeah, it's a practical a thing. But in part two, Tom Savini plays the creep, and it's very clearly, you know, a guy in a costume. And in this, it's not. It's more just like kind of a a Halloween prop looking thing, which um, is what they went back to for the series that just came out uh, on Shudder a couple of years ago, which maybe we'll have time to talk about later. I don't know. We'll see. Oh, but then nice. it, uh, it we get the title, and it cuts into the first story, which is Father's Day. This is one that, that stuck with me for some reason, and I think just because as a kid I was sort of obsessed with thriller, and this is very much like, you know, a corpse coming out of the ground kind of story. You're in this elegant, beautiful, old family mansion out in the middle of the woods, and all of these nasty, horrible people. <laughs> oh, yeah, I have family of snobs. Is what I have. And, uh, and Ed Harris is a bit of an outsider here. I think he's the husband of one of the women in this. I don't know all their names. There's like Bedelia, Sylvia. Uh, Ed yeah, Harris yeah. plays a guy named Hank, another dude named Richard. But anyway, they're, they're there, and it's Father's Day, and they are awaiting the arrival of this woman, uh, Bedelia, Bedelia, I believe is her Aunt name. Bedelia, yeah. And she's a bit of a loony, um, but there's a good reason for it. She... <laughs> <laughs> these, but With, that's the, oh, see, that's the thing. These stories are so simple. Like, there's no nuance to them. No, which is no. which is they jump fine. right in. I mean, that's what which these I comic, love. These comic book stories were like that. You tell an interesting story in three pages. There's not a lot to it. 
but it's that it's still fun. This is actually the thing, you know, that the HBO Tales from the Crypt series changed, I think. You know, like like most anthology movies are like this, right? If the movie's only an hour and a half and you're going to be telling four or five stories, right. it, those stories are relatively short. You get to the point quickly, and so did the comics. You know, it's the same deal. There'd be like five stories in one thin little comic book. Yeah, yeah. You know, plus a page of letters to the editor and pages with ads and stuff in it. And so, you know, they had to be short and quick and to the point, which I think is part of their skill. Uh, and this movie's no different. It just it has to be that way. Whereas, like the Tales from the Crypt TV show, and I think also this is why the sequel it takes a little more time with the story, so uh-huh. you do get a little bit more. I mean, like maybe three more minutes more time with each story, but still, you get a little more connection, a little more involved in each of the characters. They seem more real and, and just not so. Here's the plot. It's more of a plot thing than a character thing. But yeah, so all these people, like you said, are stereotypical, terrible people. And uh, the older woman, I guess it's the other aunt or the grandmother, I don't know, is retelling a story. Her name is Sylvia. Yeah, I think that she and Bedelia are sisters and their dad. Yeah, that's it. Their dad, I, I have here, the father had had Bedelia's lover killed, so Bedelia killed him. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, if my notes are to be believed... As many times as I have seen this movie, all of that escapes me. Maybe because I just revert to what I took in as a kid and I was like there's this horrible father who's super old and senile who's a dick to everybody and all he does is pound his cane on the table and say I want my cake I want my cake oh my god that's hilarious and for a brief minute I thought that that was played I I looked at it three times before I realized it was not played by one of our favorite actors yeah right you know who I mean I think so the guy from Creepshow 2 is that what you're talking about yeah I could have sworn it was him but then i went to the imdb and no it just a guy who looks a lot like him in yeah. that hair and makeup but. but you know it's funny the mom sylvia is like the definition of like a wasp i mean she's so waspy yeah. uh her name is carrie nye and i was like i know this woman and and the thing that i've seen her in before she was so waspy what did i and I, I finally figured it out, and this is so random, but sometimes I drop these little random nuggets, and then people are like, oh, I've seen that too. Did you ever see the movie Hello Again with Shelley Long? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, my mom loved that movie. I love that I watched movie. I it a lot. I, I love Shelley Long, period. And <laughs> stop. But like that movie, I love so much. And uh, this woman was in it playing a waspy character just like she is in this. Oh, she was like the hospital administrator's wife or something. And and, okay. and she broke the scandal, you know. Of <laughs> it, watch Hello Again. It's a great flick. Anyway, um, <laughs> so Aunt Bedelia, Aunt Bedelia comes back, but like, and she, she's eccentric. I don't know. She looks like it's so stereotypical yeah. that it's difficult to describe. Like one of those old lady yeah. characters who like wears everything she owns. Like she, mm-hmm. <laughs> she's got, got like John Lennon glasses on, uh huh, and a, a hat and a shawl and like tons of jewelry and like it's just ridiculous and she doesn't even come inside she just stumbles out to the dad's grave and has colorful flashbacks about her horrible father who on every father's day would demand where's my cake bedelia (laughs) (laughs) and eventually she picks up a a marble ashtray and whacks him over the head with him and, and kills him yeah and then, you know, as this story is being told to Ed Harris's character, Hank, because he's new to the family, apparently, the other guy, I think his name is Nathan, uh, who's played by John Lormer, 
picks up the actual, well, he says this is, it. it's rumored to be this one, right? It's an actual marble ashtray, which we will go on to notice in each of the stories thereafter. No, no, you won't. No, you won't. Not unless you've read the trivia. No, I Craig, did you, Craig. You noticed? I did. Oh, my God. I would have never I did not noticed. read the trivia. I have seen this movie so many times, and this was the first time ever that I was like, oh, wait, the ashtray's there next to Stephen King. And then I started looking for it. Because I was That's like, does funny. this appear in every single one? Yeah, yeah. I, I knew about it, and I had to look for it. Because it's blinking, you miss it. But yeah, it's in. That stupid ashtray is in every... Give me some credit for this one, man. I know. I was it, really proud I, for noticing that. It, well, you should be, because it, it is subtle. You really have to look for it. But anyway, Crazy Aunt Bedelia is out at her father's grave, and she's drinking some whiskey, and she pours some whiskey on the grave, which causes the dad, apparently to reanimate and he comes yep. out of the grave thriller style uh-huh. um, saying where's my cake Bedelia and then he kills Bedelia <laughs> I have in my notes Ed and this is my f- but not before I have in my notes Ed Harris and his wife dance like idiots <laughs> yes <laughs> this is that it's that typical 80s dance party that every horror oh movie has, you know, usually it's kids, but... <laughs> so funny, like, I can't imagine, I don't remember, maybe people danced like that in the 80s, I was, maybe oh, I was God. too young, I don't know, but like, it just looks, they just look so stupid. I also imagine in my mind, you know, in the making of these movies, that they probably haven't secured any music rights so they so they're those, just dancing to nothing <laughs> to nothing like idiots yeah, <laughs> and it's hilarious but he goes out uh to smoke or something and he's in the spooky graveyard and he finds dead aunt bedelia and then he kind of falls down and then does nothing he's <laughs> yeah he, he lays there and, and watches while a headstone slowly tips over and falls on it. I don't know why he didn't move at all. I don't know yeah. if he felt like if he moved, he was going to cause the headstone to fall faster or something. It, it, it's pretty silly how he just sort of sits there and lets lets that headstone fall on his head. But indeed it does. The bad guy stumbles off. And he looks great, by the way. Like, he's totally he zombified and, oh, really good. Classic zombie. Like, yeah. earthy, Like, skeletal. moss hanging off. Like Oh, I love this. Love this. The, the makeup and effects. The makeup and effects in this movie are, are great. Yeah. It's, it's, like, super fun. Like, to, like, throwback and very much in keeping with the tone and style of the comics. Like, it, it looks fantastic. Fantastic. Super, super mm-hmm. fun to watch. But um, Zombie Dad then, you know, gets in the house and, and breaks. Into the kitchen. He breaks Waspy Sylvia's neck. And then the next thing, I, like, the kids, her kids are, like, looking for her. And, and they go, they open a door, like, to the kitchen or whatever. And the zombie guy is standing there with Sylvia's head frosted like a cake on a platter (laughs) with candles and everything (laughs) i got my cake i got my cake and then and then it goes like that that you know freeze frames and and turns into an animated cell which moves us on to the next when i was a kid this made an impression on me i thought that was the creepiest freakiest most gruesome thing you could imagine the the father's day one 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that last image of him with the head on the platter done up like a cake was... Uh, yeah. You know, as an adult now, it's it's silly and it's supposed to be. You right. know, it's 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 the darkly humorous thing. And- Stylistically, it's probably... I would say probably the best one. And, and, and the one that's the nicest to look at. Like, it, it's, it's, it looks great. You mean, uh, you mean of the stories? You mean, like, cinematography and everything? Yeah, cinematography and, and just the style. It Because, you know, it's so... It's very it's, stylized. It's, it's dark, you know, it, it's a dark, spooky mansion and graveyard, and it, 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 yeah. it looks really good. The rest are more based... Kind of in a reality. I mean, this this feels like they're not spooky. as gothic, as right? This gothic. Yeah. That's it. That's it. And I think right. what I like about this one is how varied the stories are because the second one, the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill, which stars Stephen King, and if I'm not mistaken, I think this is the most acting Stephen King has done in one movie, right? Like his biggest role. Yeah, it has to be because usually he just pops in. He does these little cameos, cameos. here and there. He's a truck driver. He's a priest. Grave or something, digger. And, right. Yeah. Yeah, but in this he is this he is the only guy in this entire segment and he is hamming it up. <laughs> like uh, constantly in the back of my mind I have this fear that somehow Stephen King will listen to this podcast and he'll hear me say things about him that I wouldn't <laughs> want him to hear me say because I have like I admire this man so much like I just think he's an absolute genius and beyond that like he's just a great guy he's a really yeah. good guy oh my I god agree. he is a terrible actor just awful he really is awful <laughs> like I get the I get the novelty of putting him in cameos in his own movies and I get the novelty of putting him in this role. It's hilarious, but he is just god awful. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I give him a pass here just because I mean, I, I think they were intending to go way over the top with this character. Yeah, he was directed this way. I, I fully believe, mm-hmm. you know, and that's another thing that we didn't say before. Like, he and Romero just had such mutual admiration for one another that they just really wanted to work together. Yeah. This was their opportunity to work together. And, and I really think that they, you know, really relished in this opportunity. And, and so here, I think that they're having fun. I think that... Um, Romero, you know, I, I read, you know, who knows if any of the things that we read are true, but I read that Romero directed him to play it like Wile E. Coyote. Yeah. And, and he does like just, just big eyed and, and I mean, it is, it's cartoonish and, and stupid, but, but funny. I, I thought it was funny. I, I liked this one. This one is tonally just so different from even all the others. It, it is so over the top silly uh it's your classic meteor strikes in the woods and it just happens to be by this total redneck it's, cabin it's the blob but moss yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the blob but green yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's so true it, it clearly they're trying hard not to be the blob but that's exactly what it is he walks out there he looks at it and uh all that's missing really is the dog you know, the dog's not there, but he touches this meteor and then immediately he gets these visions of how much he can sell this meteor for to the Department of Meteors at the local university in this utterly cartoonish flashback, uh, sort of a dream sequences that he has. Right. And when you say cartoonish, I, I assume you mean 
much like the style of the comics. And I talked about this in in addition, of course, to just being outlandish. But I talked about this when we did part two. There are parts of this movie that are shot so that it looks like a comic frame. Right. I I mean, you you feel when you're watching this one in particular, you feel like you are reading one of those comics. It looks like it. And and the, the flash not flashback, but like the, the fantasy sequences or the dream sequences, like it's, it's shot so that the camera is shooting from a high angle. So it's kind of yep. looking down and it's cantilevered and ang- yeah, different angles and things. Right. Yeah, you're right. right. And it looks, it looks very much like a, a cell from a comic, which I'm impressed. I mean, points for yeah. style. Um, and, and those, those flashbacks, I keep saying flashbacks, they're not flashbacks, the, the fantasy sequences where he's, you know, thinking about how much his life will change if he can sell this meteor for $200. Yeah, $200. And, and then, and then in real life, in real time, when he tries to get it and he breaks it and it, it opens up and all this ooze comes out or whatever. And then there's the whole fantasy sequence about him, you know, being (laughs) with his tail between his legs, trying to sell this broken meteor and and being so disappointed it's cute Mm -hmm. and and that's like stephen king plays it cute he plays this guy well his name's jordy verrill it's right there in the title but he's just like this simple country bumpkin yeah not very bright seems to be like the the last of his clan or you know he's all alone (laughs) in this little shack in the middle of nowhere yeah he's likable i liked him Oh, you done it now, Jordy Verrill. You monkhead. Verrill luck's always in. You spell that kind of luck. B-A-D. Still, I got to try. <laughs> and I felt bad when he started to get covered in sores and, and, well, and mold. <laughs> honestly, <laughs> as a kid, this one bothered me, too. Because one of the hallmarks, really, of these stories is, generally speaking... The bad guy gets what's right. coming to them. Yeah, somebody get, will get murdered, but then the person who arranged the murder is going to get an ironic comeuppance. And this story, this guy just did nothing wrong. He just stumbled across the meteor. He reached out and touched it. And then as he sits and watches TV, he's sucking on his finger, and he notices then that, that there's green growing on his finger where he was had touched the meteor. And he looks in the mirror and sees his tongue is turning green. Where in, And then, of course, it, it just keeps going back to the outside. And we see that more and more green, there's like a path of green growing from where the meteor was to his house. And every time it cuts between what's going on with him uh, and the what it looks like outside, it's just green is just overtaking everything. Mm-hmm. And it's overtaking him. He doesn't call the hospital. He initially calls the, tries to call the hospital. But then he gets another one of his thoughts, which is that if he goes there, the doctor's going to say, oh, you're going to gonna have to lose the fingers and he's gonna cut off his fingers and so literally the rest of the show is just watching him get more and more green until he's a big mossy mess sadly the last thing he does is shoot his head blow his head off with a shotgun yeah it's pretty dark it is and it's <laughs> and it's sad like yeah. you're right that this one does very much break the mold it's usually bad people mm-hmm. i've said this a, a bazillion times not only do you not feel bad for them but you relish in it you know you relish in them getting what's coming to them and and this guy is a likable uh, empathetic character and so to 
all but yeah. see him blow his head off with a uh, shotgun. Yeah. <laughs> but we, we, you know, here we're talking about like, oh, isn't that sad? No, it's it's comedy. No, it's it's goofy. really ridiculous. Yeah, it's, it's goofy. And and again, like the playing it like Wiley Coyote tempers that right. It yes, makes it silly yes. and ridiculous. You know, there's a lot going on with the sound design in this one as well. The television is kind of on constantly. But, of course, we're seeing different moments, and so sometimes it's a different show or whatever. And so as Jordy's walking around or we see what he's doing, we can hear the soundtrack. And oftentimes the dialogue of what's being said in the show, either directly or indirectly, kind of references what's happening in real life. And it's just kind of cute. I mean, it, it's not that important, but it's really smart <laughs> the way that 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 was all edited together, and I really like that. And then the last bit of it, the ironic twist at the, at the end, or whatever you want to call it, is just that we see that this green is going to be going way, way out and right. basically taking over the world because right. it's going down the street all the way to Castle Rock. Right. <laughs> while the guy on the TV says something apropos. <laughs> yeah. The next one is called Something to Tide You Over. And for whatever reason, this is the one that stands out to me. Like, this is the one that I remember the most vividly. And maybe it's because it stars two of the most recognizable people for me. Ted Danson. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so I like it's so oh. weird to see Ted Danson in a role like this. Yeah, I guess Serious? I don't know. Like Ted Danson is the guy from Cheers to me. That's who to he is. Everybody. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. And, and, what else did he really do besides little well, bits and then he was here in, and there? Then he was in like the Three Men and a Baby movies, but yeah. like in those movies he was just that guy from Cheers. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Reading about this and reading about some other things, I've I've heard that everything I read just paints Ted Danson to be just this great guy, like this just really funny guy that everybody likes and everybody likes working with. But anyway, here he's he's young and in his swanky apartment and, and somebody uh, knocks on the door and he opens it and it's Leslie Nielsen, mm-hmm. who is also great. And... He he plays against type, sort of. At least based on what I know him from here, like the the stuff that I know Leslie Nielsen from is the Naked Gun stuff. Yeah, he'll forever be known for doing these Frank Drebin comedic things, and he did a lot of comedic stuff later in life. But because my dad was obsessed with science fiction, old science fiction movies and things, I grew up watching Forbidden Planet, and he is. Uh, one of the stars of Forbidden Planet, and he, in his younger years, and the guy was in his 70s or 80s when he was playing Frank Drebin. I mean, yeah, he had had a long career of playing the dashing leading man well before he jumped into being the older comedic guy. Yeah. But yeah, but right here, he's the older Leslie Nielsen, but he's playing a very straight, role the older but like the older younger yeah like he's probably what in his like 50s maybe early 60s here and he's still the one of the things i mean even in the naked gun movies when he's older this guy is really handsome um and he's insanely handsome and has uh like charisma like this guy has star power like leading man 
power. And uh, he, he's not playing it funny here, even though, I mean, the tone of this piece is pretty dark and pretty serious. I guess he was really, you know, like he really hammed it up on set. Like he was, you know, playing jokes and goofing around all the time. And what, did he, he have like a, like a fart, fart machine, machine or something? <laughs> 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 that he would set off like right before Romero would say action. It sounds and, hilarious. And crack Ted dancing up. I like, I, I just, I have these <laughs> fantasies in my mind of these guys just having such a great time making this. But anyway, Ted Danson is having an affair with Leslie Nielsen's wife, and Leslie Nielsen knows about it. You know, you gotta be grateful to us. You know that? I mean, if you ever loved her, you don't now. There won't be any uh, alimony, none of that community property shit. She just wants out. Well, I don't know whether I ever loved her or not, Harry. That doesn't matter. The point is, I keep what is mine. No exception to that rule ever. No exceptions, Harry. And so he plays this recording of his wife begging Ted Danson for help. And Leslie Nielsen's like, well, you have to come with me if you want to save her. And then he takes him to the beach. (laughs) He drives him to the beach. He's got a beach house, apparently. And uh, there's a hole there and uh, a shovel. And he says, I want you to kneel in that hole and cover yourself with sand. And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm not going to do that. And he he says, oh, yes, you are. He pulls a gun on him. And he says, I promise you, and I'm a man of my word, once you do this, you can see her. Yeah. Oh, is it uh, Becky? Yeah, yeah. So uh, he begrudgingly does this and ends up buried up to his neck, basically, in sand. Only his head is popped out of the sand. And uh, in the meantime, Leslie Nielsen leaves him there, comes right back with a long cord. It's so cute, this old 80s technology. Oh, my God. Anyway, it must be from his house, I guess, like way <laughs> the house, hell up the yeah, street. yeah, like 300 yards he's got, away. He's got like a giant spool of cables so that he can um, <laughs> br- bring in a television, plop it down in front of him and turn it on. Uh, and uh, it is this Becky also buried with her neck uh, up to her neck in water, but sh- the tide is coming in. And so the water is starting to splash in her face and uh, it's looking pretty dangerous. And he says, this isn't a recording. I'm recording it for later, but this is a live feed. Um, and you can see if she'll be able to make her way out of it. And so uh, he leaves him there. Uh, and he says, uh, you know, if you're lucky, you just need to hold your breath really, really well and maybe the tide will free you instead of bury you. And then he leaves, and eventually the tide comes in, and it shorts out the TV, and then Ted Danson holds on as much as he can. There's this really awesome shot where uh, the water comes over him fully, and we see this underwater shot, and uh, he's, I don't know, God, it's like at least 10 seconds of him struggling and obviously he's going to drown. That made me very anxious. I have no idea how they shot that because all you see is, you know, Ted Danson's head above the sand. But, but like Mm. the, the tide coming in and hitting his face, like, Oh yeah. Right. Like like that, like that. Gosh, it just, I I mean, even putting myself in the shoes of an actor, that would make me so anxious. Just filming that, even knowing I was safe, just something, you know, the water rushing at your face and covering your mouth and nose. Ugh, it would make me very, it, it made me think of waterboarding. Yeah. It, is. <laughs> it, was, but worse. it was frightening. <laughs> but, but Leslie Nielsen uh, just gleefully watches them die. Yeah. 
from from the safety of his house where he's got this almost James Bond villain yeah, <laughs> type it's great. living 70s, room set up. Uh-huh. Pushes a button, a painting slides up, and he's got six uh, monitors there, each trained a different security camera on his house, and he just flips two of them so that he can watch both of them go. Right. Because he's got a camera set up on him as well, yeah. Yeah, the last thing that uh, Ted Danson says before he dies is, I'm going to get you, Richard. But then Leslie Nielsen goes out there Richard is Leslie Nielsen, obviously. <laughs> Leslie Nielsen goes out there the next day, and uh, Harry's body is gone. And then he's back at his Bond pad. <laughs> he hears a noise. He takes a shower. I'm like, ooh, Leslie Nielsen getting sexy. <laughs> Doesn't get his hair wet, though. No. <laughs> When he walked out of the shower, I was laughing so hard. Oh, God. that I didn't even think. Like, I totally noticed it. Like, oh, I guess he's just not going to, like, wash his hair. In the but, like, obviously, you know, that, I'm sure that was done for cinematic. Like, don't get your hair yeah. wet because we're going we're gonna to have to do more than one take. And uh, I'm not sure was, Leslie Nielsen looks as dashing with a mop of gray probably wet hair. Probably not. Like a, like a drowned rat, right? No. So, yeah. so here's a noise. We see, I think think before he sees anything we see like these lumbering shadows but as it turns out it is the drowned zombies of harry and becky um and they look like drowned zombies they're like mm-hmm. they got seaweed and they're all bloated and gross and it's great makeup Pretty awesome actually yeah I it looks fantastic it. and he's trying to shoot them and ted, ted says you can't shoot us because we're already dead yeah <laughs> That was a little disappointing. Oh, I think it's so funny because I can just picture it. I can picture the cell and that written down below. Well, I love the effect that when he shoots them, it's like a a burst of seawater comes pouring out. That's funny. I forgot about that. I love that bit. Oh, man. When I was a kid, that that really sold the whole thing for me. And the the very end of it is that we see him buried up to his neck in the sand and the tide coming in, but him saying, I can hold my breath for a really long time. (laughs) And apparently there was like, uh, I don't remember, I I think they filmed it. Did you read this? There was an alternate ending to this one where when the zombies came, he called the cops and the the cops came and, of course, didn't find any zombies. And he's like, but wait, I, I have it on tape and he puts in the tapes but it's not tapes of the zombies it's tapes of the people being murdered and so they take him uh off to jail and it ended with him in the gas chamber saying i can hold my breath a really long time that's cute it's cute i I like this i i I prefer this this. is simpler i like the visual of people being buried up to their neck in sand (laughs) (laughs) it's more fun for you now (laughs) (laughs) it's more fun ted danson it actually talked about how they filmed him underwater because i was super curious about that and they just had a little aquarium tank and a yoke, you know, they, they just put this over his head, basically. And the top of this yoke, you know, was filled with sand or whatever. He's in a wetsuit. And then they just filled it up with water. And they had a guy with a breathing tube uh. reach it down in there. And then, you know, call action, pull the tube out. And then he could do as much as he could stand Gosh. of uh, being underwater. That would still feel really... I know. Uh, I, love, I, I, love, <laughs> I love the water. I, I love being in the water, but being out of control, you know, being... Um, your life in someone else's yeah, hands. Yeah, I was going to say at the mercy of, but yeah, putting your life in somebody else's hands, that would make me very nervous. <laughs> yeah, for sure. 
Well, I think the only thing that would make me feel good is I'm pretty sure even if you kneeled down and pulled the sand in around you, you could probably free yourself pretty freaking easily from that sand. Yeah. Your arms are not deep enough in this sand for you to not be able to pull them up. And I don't know. Sand's pretty heavy. I don't know. Anyway, all right. The next one, I would guess, is maybe the most famous of these. Like, I feel like when people talk about this movie, this is the one they talk about. Mm-hmm. It's called The Crate. Oh, God. This was my favorite one. Up until today. I saw it again today, like, again, for for years. Uh, this one was my favorite one, and it's not anymore, but it's a close second. Why? Oh, I love it. Don't get me wrong. I love it. But actually, you're going to laugh at me. I thought the last story just spoke to me a little better now as an adult oh my God. Than, uh, than this one. And as a kid, I thought the last story was, like, dumb. I still think it. I mean, it's not It's not dumb. <laughs> it's just boring. But no, talk about, talk about the crate. Oh, God. This uh, Adrian Barbeau is the most annoying, brash woman possible, and she's got this husband who is played by... Hal Holbrook. Yes, God. And he he barely talks because he can't get a word in edgewise, and he's long ago stopped trying. It's clearly this sort of loveless marriage, and they are university professors, and uh, they're having a little party at this university grounds or whatnot, and uh, the guy who's playing the other professor is Fritz Weaver who was the university professor and reanimator, right? Oh, gosh, probably. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, they're having this chat, and so you kind of get to see her character. And obviously the takeaway here is that her character is really, really mean and annoying. She embarrasses him at the party. She embarrasses everybody else. Everybody's embarrassed for him. Uh And if Dex Stanley hadn't had his teeth capped, he'd have been out on his ass years ago. Really well, my So when Parker told me that I was out of line... I told him he ought to get laid. I mean, Parker, I said, if you just have your ashes hauled, you wouldn't have to spend all this time playing Emily Vanderbilt. Or Emily Van Buren. Whoever that etiquette crotch is. And he is having fantasies throughout this segment of killing her. (laughs) But then he snaps to reality again. It's kind of cute. It's one of those fake-out moments, you know, where uh, she's putting him down, and he whips out a gun, and he shoots her in the forehead, and you're like, holy shit. And then you realize it's his fantasy. In the meantime, while this is going on, there's a night watchman, or janitor, I should say, uh, inside the university, who is cleaning up and is flipping a coin, and it falls and rolls underneath this uh, stairwell that's kind of caged up, like Mm -hmm. the under part of the stairwell. And so he kind of pries this cage up and uh, sees that there's a crate inside that's, like, dated from 1850-something or 60-something. And it says, Arctic Expedition on a ship to such-and-such university. It's chained up, and it's nailed up, and, uh, like, I mean, it's a find, right? Yeah, I think that it said, ship to the Arctic, care of somebody carpenter which which was which was a nod to john carpenter's the thing thing. and john carpenter was married to adrian barbeau at this time oh i didn't realize that yes uh and i want you to carry on but i just wanted to interject to say that adrian barbeau is fantastic in this segment she's always fantastic so good (laughs) <laughs> Adrian Barbeau, you know, it's 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 her as you hadn't really seen her, right? right. Like she's just a anno- usually she's kind of 
hot and uh-huh. bombshelly and sexy and stuff. And here she is annoying and crass, and she's great at it. <laughs> oh, she's so good. I just thought you she was hate fantastic. This woman. Shrew isn't the right word because she's no. She's obnoxious. She's loud. I, I think the reason that it's so effective is because you believe this is a person that you would meet um, who yes. is so oblivious to how obnoxious. She, I mean, like she thinks she's hilarious. She thinks that everybody is amused by her humiliating her husband all the time. Mm-hmm. Like she is just completely unaware of the fact that everybody else is viewing her in such a negative way. And she just totally goes for it. I thought she was great. <laughs> and how oh, Holbrook yeah. is great. It's weird to see. Like, I don't even know. I think how Holbrook just kind of has this uh, Southern gentility that I'm surprised yeah. to see him in a movie like this. Like, Right. Why aren't you it's like true. in Gone with the Wind? I, why, what are you doing in this movie? <laughs> what are you doing in this silly horror movie? <laughs> but he's good. I mean, and, and, he, and he does a good job playing the beaten down husband. I mean, they're obviously cartoonish versions of them, but I know people who are just two steps away from this. I know couples like this. It's really believable that this guy is just, I mean, they've been probably been married for decades. Right. But, you know, they're just in a rut and uh he's about had it with her and uh everybody kind of knows it but what are you gonna do you know right in a divorce who's gonna bother to do that not in the movies we don't divorce in the movies we kill each other <laughs> right <laughs> so it's it's convenient for him that this janitor finds this crate underneath the staircase that has a century years old monster <laughs> right <laughs> Who really just wants to go back to his crate, which is the no. part I know. Leave that guy alone. He was fine. <laughs> he wasn't bothering anybody. He was just napping. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> the uh, the janitor calls Dexter. That not not Henry, but the other guy who is flirting a little bit with some of his students at the party, which I thought was a little funny. This very old, very old guy. <laughs> flirting with these cute little girls who seem to be coming on to him, which was kind of yeah, funny. Yeah. Anyway, he goes, and uh, and they together pull out the crate, uh, him and the janitor, and they uh, start to open it up. It's real tense. I, I just... <laughs> It's tense, but it was also like painfully slow. Like it does not take this long to open a crate. Like just, just do it. <laughs> like, like quit screwing around. Just do it. <laughs> right. They pry it open by like a half an inch, and then they close it again so that they can pop the nails up and pry up every nail from it. Like, yeah, it's hilarious. But. I, l- I just love the way this is structured because you know there's going to be something bad in this crate, and there is indeed something bad in this crate. The, there's a, they look inside, they can see the monster's eyes. The janitor reaches his arm inside the crate before the top is even completely open, and immediately something's chomping on his arm, which he falls on the floor, and the crate kind of tips over on the table with him, so it's... Uh, it's still like the lid's not off of it yet, but it's kind of a jar, and that's facing the the ground. Whereas he's kind of sitting here with his arm up in it. Well, Dexter looks on with horror as this guy gets uh, his arm gets chomped on, and he gets pulled up into the crate and eaten by this monster. Now, you know the physics of all this. Uh, we yeah. Don't even need to worry okay, about. I mean. Even somebody mentions, I think later Henry mentions, does the monster really eat all those guys? Where do they go? <laughs> uh, so he gets eaten. So he is uh, freaked out by this and uh, he runs out and there's a, <laughs> a student in the darkened 
hallway of this closed building who yeah. happens to be wandering by who he grabs and the student's like oh maybe you're a little crazy uh and and maybe we don't want to call the campus police just yet while you're crazy so i'm gonna go down there and investigate too and he sees the smears of blood and they see that the crate is back underneath the staircase and so the student goes in to look at the crate but the monster's not in the crate he's next to the crate and he leaps out and he gets the student as well yeah, and chomps on him. It's been so long that I frankly don't remember, but I have in my notes fun effects. Like <laughs> so, the effects, yeah. the, <laughs> the effects must have been good here. I I do remember like <laughs> lots of blood and a lone foot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The student, the student wanted to get the because the the sneaker or whatever the janitor's was still there. It was the only thing left of him sitting outside the crate. And he's like, "I just want to get this so that we can measure the bite marks." <laughs> well, and and maybe maybe this is maybe I have fun effects because maybe this is the first time that we get a good look at the monster who they on set playfully nicknamed Fluffy, and it, it it's kind of got a baboonish look to it, but like a monstrous baboon. Uh, Designed by Tom Savini, this was uh, the first fully animatronic thing that Savini had ever made and um i really i like it like in 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 hindsight like from a 2023 perspective it's potentially a little bit quaint but it's so it works i want to say cute but i don't mean that in a derogatory way like (laughs) it's a it's a fun little monster and you know it it rips people apart it's like a 50s style arctic monster that's just been uh amped up slightly you know for the 80s i think it's got these just a long line of razor sharp teeth yeah you don't get really long lingering shots of it either it's no no it's quick and so that helps but i like it it's 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 cool like it lives in a box yeah it's not like you know this huge monster it's something that can fit in a three by three crate but uh yep. it's funny i i liked it anyway it kills charlie and then professor num number two runs off to henry and tells him about it and like <laughs> a light bulb goes off over henry's head so uh he drugs professor number two and then leaves a note for wilma that's like um professor number two got into some trouble and i'm trying to clean up after him meet me at the university of course, she's all like, oh, my stupid husband who can never do anything by himself. I guess I have to do everything. But, you know, she's like proud of herself for it, like patting herself on the back. Oh, and he also makes it very salacious. Like, he, you know, he got in trouble with some student. Now she's like crying and, and you're really good at this. So you can help. So she's also like, you know, loves the scandal of it all. Right, well. right, right, right. Woman. And so he lures her there. He tells her that this girl is crying under the stairs. It's such it's such a weird scene because she is more concerned about berating him. Like she doesn't seem to be particularly concerned about this girl or or what has happened to her or whatever. What it, of course it's all a big ruse and uh he pushes her under there and chains her to the crate at which point she continues to berate him for like a minute. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, Just it's a little at him. It, it gets a a little kooky here, a, a little unbelievable, a little um, what's the word I'm looking for? Contrived. Like he pushes her under there. You know, she can see there's no girl there, but she doesn't seem to care. She just wants to yell at him, and she tells him everything from, you know, you're worthless, you can't do anything, to you can't even get it up in bed. Oh, right, yeah. And then, boom, jump scare, which did get me. In the middle of berating him, the monster springs out of the crate behind her and uh, takes her in. He, 
uh, very gingerly in a bit of a tense scene as well, comes back and uh, manages to chain the crate up, get the locks back around the chains, pull the crate out into his car and take it to a ravine that has, I guess, a pool of water at the bottom of it and toss it off the ravine, presumably drowning the monster inside the crate and uh, leaving no trace of any of these bodies. So I can keep a secret if you can, Professor, and we'll just play chess every day for the rest of our lives. But uh, the last shot is of the monster underneath the water, and apparently he can breathe underwater because you see these eyes. Breaks free. Well, I was glad. <laughs> he, he, I didn't want the monster to die. I didn't either. Poor little guy. <laughs> just know. wanted to be in his crate. Now he doesn't even have a crate to be in. Jeez. <laughs> Jerks. Yeah, and then it comes to the last one, and you're going to have to explain to me the appeal of this one because I don't get it. It's just one of the grandpas from National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation <laughs> um, in his sterile kind of futuristic apartment, and uh, he hates bugs, and then his house is infested with bugs. That's it. <laughs> He's a Howard Hughes guy. You know, Howard Hughes famously kind of like lived out the rest of his days in a penthouse apartment, complete germaphobe, letting his fingernails grow long, wouldn't let anybody touch him or anything like that, and and, and kind of went a little nuts, right? And this is basically that guy. Uh, he's in this completely puerile, white, sterile penthouse apartment with almost no furniture, but a lot of 80s futuristic stuff where, you know, he can talk to people on his phone on different lines, and there's an intercom there. There's a little vacuum machine that uh, every time he blows his nose or uses a napkin or whatever, he can just put it in this little hole, push a button, and it gets sucked away. But he found a bug, of a big cockroach, and he has a little spray can, and he's obsessed with getting the bugs out of his apartment. In the meantime, he's also in the midst of having these conversations with people on the phone, and you realize he's like a major douche, like an evil Elon Musk in a way. Uh, he's talking about his stock prices and what he did there, and then there's a, a man who died on one of his boards, and he's actually... He killed himself because of him somehow, and he's actually pretty thrilled about it because then, you know, he's kind of out of the way. Then his widow calls him and berates him for it, and he kind of taunts her and is mean and nasty to her as well. In the meantime, he's walking around, and these bugs are just showing up everywhere, and the reason I like this so much... I don't know, I like that, like, slightly, like, classist thing about this. <laughs> this guy is a arrogant, corporate, millionaire, billionaire dude who is holding himself up uh, away from the world while he's continuing to enact his mayhem down below on all these poor people. Right. But he's afraid of the bugs, and the bugs are going to do him in at the end. And I don't know, I just, I, number one, I like that. And I think I appreciate that, that more as an adult than as I did as a kid. The other thing I thought... Was it from a pacing perspective? I thought this was the most masterfully paced and edited segment in the whole bit. Oh, that's hilarious because I have like a quarter of a page of notes on this uh, segment. I remember nothing about it. I have no idea what my notes mean because I remember nothing about it. But the one note that I can understand is segments should have been much shorter. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> to be honest with you, like I felt... You know, you had said earlier, oh, the, these things blow right through you. I kind of felt that all of the ones up to this one were a little plotting. Like, if they had been done today, I think that shots would have been faster, things would have been a little more tight. 
uh, and we wouldn't have dwelled so much in certain aspects. That, you know, I thought it was a sort of old-fashioned building of suspense. Like, we do a little bit our job nowadays of it. But this one, I felt just moved, flew right along by. And uh, it just gets you with this sterile white environment, him doing the thing with the bugs, the stuff that he's talking about with these people on the machine. It's like two different stories kind of playing out simultaneously. Him with the bugs... And what he's been doing with these people in the business world and how they're reacting. I don't know, man. I, I just, I just really liked it, and I, and I think bugs are creepy. Yeah. And they're real, and this could theoretically happen, whereas none of the other stuff could theoretically happen. And it is so disgusting. Oh my god! I suppose it could happen that bazillions of cockroaches could infest your house all at once and kill you. I suppose that could happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it could happen. <laughs> What can't happen is people coming out of the grave, you know, and uh, reanimated monsters in a crate for over 200 years. No, I think this one comes closer than any of the others to having the tiniest shred of social commentary. Like, here's this rich, powerful guy who sits up in his pristine palace in the sky and looks down upon the bugs of society. Yeah. It's ham-fisted, but it is right. nonetheless, you know, I liked that social commentary aspect. And I thought it was kind of prescient, honestly, because aren't we all kind of bitching about this right now? So, yeah, I liked seeing him get what was coming to him. And I thought the, this was the most gruesome of all of them. I have that. that that's, that's my last note. Disgusting bug body shot. What is it? Did, yeah. they, did they just, like, eat him? No, like, he kind of collapses. It's like the bugs are getting into his clothes, and it looks like they're maybe getting into his mouth. Ew. And he collapses as the room is literally filling up with bugs, almost like a pool will fill up with water. And uh, he is laying down on the ground, and suddenly the bugs, like you see like a little bladder effect in his in his forehead. You see some bugs start to crawl out of his mouth, and then you see his chest uh, expand, and you literally see out from under his skin the bugs bursting out yeah. just en masse and going everywhere. And it looks absolutely disgusting. It's It's the most gruesome thing that we've seen so far. Even the crate thing, which had the potential to be really gory, and had these close-up scenes, these people sort of getting eaten, the reality is, once that color washes over all of it, and I think they deliberately made the blood a little bit more watery or something, so it almost didn't even show. It's just like something wet. Like, those scenes, they, they're not as gory as most movies that we watch are. Right. But this, this sequence was in your face, bugs bursting out of someone's skin. That was gross. <laughs> I found it fascinating that literally the bugs were the most expensive thing on this movie. Right. The biggest part of the budget went to these roaches. <laughs> Hundreds of thousands of roaches at like 50 cents a pop or something like that. Like That's nuts. Ridiculous. Crazy. Hundreds. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think over $100,000 spent on roaches. Wild. <laughs> I loved this one. I, I again, I liked all the other ones as much, and, and I told you before the crate was my favorite one, and still is a is a close second. But I think I'm just coming at things from a different angle nowadays, and I just really appreciated the pacing and the filmmaking and the everything about this last one. I thought it was the most skillfully done, even though it was definitely the simplest. <laughs> all right. To be fair, in case anybody's interested in backstory, Todd sent me this movie. 
and I watched it, at, but it cut off right before this last segment. And so you then sent me the last segment later, but I watched it like oh. in the middle of the night. Like I woke up in the middle of the night and I was, I was, you know, I couldn't sleep. So I was like, well, I'll just knock out that segment really quick. And so I just, <laughs> it was like three in the morning, I just sat in my living room and watched it and then went back to bed. So I, I just, I have no memory of it. <laughs> <laughs> Nor do I really have any memory of the end cap. I, what I have is uh, we're back to Billy's house. Garbage men uh, see the comic that the dad had thrown away in the trash. They see it and they see an ad for a voodoo doll. Dad wakes up in the morning and he's downstairs having breakfast. He's like, oh, man, I had a hard time sleeping last night. I got this stiff neck. And she's like, oh, really? That's that's strange. And then he goes, ah, like there's another wincing pain. And you see Billy upstairs with this maniacal smile and these wide eyes grinning from ear to ear as he is stabbing this voodoo doll over and over and his dad is like in pain i don't know you know if he kills him i don't know pretty dark dark as hell as a kid that stood out to me as well how could this kid do this to his dad you know (laughs) he's a monster you know he's so terrible but his dad was also a dick yeah he uh, was I, I mean, I love this movie. I like it more than Creepshow 2 just because the variety of stories. I like the tone of it. I th- I like the goofiness, the intentional goofiness of it. It's just got all these stars. <laughs> it is yeah. just star-studded. And that's fun, too. I mean, this super young Ed Harris and this this just striking Ted Danson and Leslie Nielsen. Like, yeah. It's just awesome. I love Creepshow 2. I love it. I also, I, I saw it in high school for the first time, and I had the tape, and my friends and I would also watch that religiously. But I just, I thought, like, bang for the buck. I thought Creep, the first Creep Show resonated with me a little bit more. And, it's and good. I was real happy to revisit it, yeah. It's a good movie. And it's, it's, it's fun to watch two guys who, you know, really are icons of the genre playing together mm-hmm. that's just so much fun like romero and stephen king just playing and having a good time and uh i think commercially this is the most successful anthology film ever you know it's not like it's pioneered the genre but i think in the 80s it kind of revived yeah. the genre a little bit and so then of course we got creep show 2 and we got cat's eye and tales from the dark side and we've talked about a bunch of times how much we enjoy these uh, anthology films and uh, I, I honestly think that I just like part two better because I saw it first and I was young and it made an impression on me um, but this this is a really good movie and this this is required reading for the court yeah <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> the two guys in a chainsaw film studies class have this <laughs> this is in there somewhere yeah for sure. <laughs> Well, thank you again for listening to another episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. You can find us online just by Googling Two Guys in a Chainsaw Podcast. Uh, Find us in our social media pages or our website. Just leave us a note. Let us know what you thought of this episode and what you would like us to do in the future. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash chainsaw podcast. Please consider supporting us there. We put out mini-sodes every month. We put out um, written reviews. We have lots of great behind-the-scenes chatter. We also release the unedited 
extended versions of our phone calls uh, to our patrons and give them a hand in picking which of the requests that we get uh, that we'll actually do in a future episode. So patreon.com slash chainsaw podcast. And I just want to thank all of our patrons out there for their support, as well as anyone who's listening to this. The best thing you can do to support us really is to share this and uh, let other people know that you enjoy this podcast and uh, get us some more listeners. Yep. Until next time, I am Todd. And I'm Craig. With two guys and a chainsaw. Ah.